Good morning. How's everybody? Everybody happy to be here? Good. My, uh, my mom and my brother, my sister-in-law, came last service, and my niece made me a card. Aw, so just wanted to share that. Um, so there's that. Y'all, we're in the middle of a um, really cool sermon series here at Christian Church Buckhead. Uh, <clears throat> it started at the beginning of the summer. We're calling it Roots, and it's just a, kind of a, a summer-long marathon through a bunch of kind of basic spiritual disciplines, things that we all kind of need to be reminded of from time to time, and so kind of getting back to the basics and getting back to the roots of our faith. And so this last half of the series that started, I guess, two Sundays ago, uh, is just on the Lord's Prayer. We're going through it one phrase at a time and kind of breaking down what it means and what the significance of each one of those phrases means to us uh, here today. So um, I'm excited to have the topic I've got, actually, because uh, the last few times I've preached, I've had some pretty heavy stuff. So this one, I think, is uh, a little more upbeat. Um, it gives us something to kind of go away with. This is not so much as a, of a how-to sermon, but more of a what-if sermon. And we'll, um, that'll become a little clearer as we get there. But we're talking about the phrase, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and what all that means. Now there's some historical context that's helpful in understanding a little bit about what this phrase would have meant to Jesus' disciples and the people who heard him say this uh, so long ago. Uh, Israel was under Roman rule. And if you're even a peripheral student of history, then you know that Roman rule was, in a lot of ways, kind of neat. We got a lot of things from them as far as culturally. But as a governing system, it was pretty oppressive. Um, You know, all the... uh, this kind of a cult of the emperor. So the emperor was seen as a deity, uh, and they were just very oppressive, and they were expansive, and they expanded the kingdom by conquering other peoples. And we come into this uh, story looking at a, a nation who's been oppressed for you know, several generations, hundreds of years, not just by Rome, but by uh, cultures before. And so Israel is kind of in the midst of this, and they've been downtrodden and beaten up, Uh, for generations and generations. And here they are waiting for God's kingdom to arrive. And they had a very specific understanding of what that meant. Um, What a lot of people may not realize is that during Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah. Interestingly enough, it was not something Jesus ever said about himself. But a lot of people said it about themselves. And so there are a lot of movements that came and went and the generations before and the generations immediately following uh, the ministry of Jesus. And they all started and ended the same way. They all started with some sort of uh, really charismatic leader getting a bunch of people together, attempting to overthrow the Roman authorities, getting squashed. And then, without fail, the leader of that group would be executed. It's just the way it went. The problem was, is that they're trying to solve a political solution, uh, a, a, a political problem with very intense political solutions. And the thing that they were doing is they were going up against a kingdom, an empire, that made their power through violence and oppression. And when someone is that good at what they do, you can't fight them the same way and expect to overcome them. And so they tried and they tried and they failed and failed every single time. Um, 
we've been reading this book together as a teaching team and as a worship team about the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that one of the authors talks about is that we've quite enough teaching in the various modes of achieving our will in the world. We build our kingdoms all over the world, and the wreckage is all around us. Israel was living in the midst of daily reminders of what that meant. They, they had, in a sense, their own kingdom. I mean, they were, when you're under Roman rule, a lot of times, because it was so big, they let the cultures kind of do what they did as cultures, but they didn't have any power. So effectively, they weren't really a kingdom. They were, they were kind of allowed to go through the motions of what they said was their own culture, but ultimately it all came down to allegiance to the emperor. And as many times as they tried to rebuild their kingdom, it just crumbled. And so they had to watch as what they loved and what they hoped for was destroyed over and over and over again. And one of the problems was that they were looking so far ahead. They were looking so forward and they were expecting something later to come. And then Jesus walks in on the scene. And he's so out of step with everything that's going on in the day. I mean, not just from a political standpoint, but from a cultural standpoint, from a religious standpoint. He didn't really get along with anyone. And everything he did was in some way seditious or rebellious, either to the Roman authorities or even to the authorities of, uh, of the religious elite of his people. Um, here we have a guy that comes in and he's on friendly terms with Roman soldiers, but he's on antagonistic terms with his own people who are religious leaders. He does ministry to the poor and the downtrodden and to the oppressed and the sick and to the dying. And then he goes and has dinner with the tax collectors and the people that put them in the positions that they're in, that perpetuated the systems that allowed them to be oppressed. And in the midst of that, he comes and he starts talking about a new way to understand the kingdom. So everyone's kind of seeing what he's doing and wondering about, you know, why is he acting this way? What are they? And then he lays out this whole big discourse, call it the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and central to the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. But here he lays out almost a call to rebellion against everything that people had expected. I mean, this is the teaching where you've got him talking about uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is where he talks about the golden rule and... Uh, rules about fasting and about divorce and about lust and about anger and about what you do with your money and all this stuff. And he takes everything that everyone thought and just turns it on its head and made a lot of people mad. And so then he lays out this prayer and right away the prayer is openly seditious. It's openly rebellious. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, that is an affront to the Roman Empire. You're talking about people who deified the Caesars and their family. And to come and say, there's somebody greater than that whose name is revered and set apart from everybody else. I mean, that's dangerous. Derek talked a little bit last week about how when a teacher taught a prayer, it kind of became the signature of that movement. It was kind of the flag that they flew. And Jesus was flying a very dangerous flag over his people at this point. His message was something that was intensely divisive. It's an affront to the Roman authority, but then it's also an affront to the people's expectation of an uprising. 
Because they're waiting for a kingdom to come up and out of where they are. And it seems like Jesus is really saying, the kingdom's already here. It's a matter of what you're willing to do to reveal it. To make it visible. To make it arrive. It's not something that needs to be brought up by human hands. It's something that's already here. It just needs to be revealed. It's all around us. And it's in what we do every single day or not. To show it to others. It seems as though as Jesus talks and does ministry and goes around doing the things that he does, it doesn't even seem like he's interested in restarting Israel. He doesn't really have any really regard for his own dignity. He's not really concerned about the fact that he's making enemies or making friends. He's just doing these things, confounding everybody. And instead of trying to restart Israel, it seems like he's hell-bent on altering the world at its very foundations. It's a call to rebellion, to change everything. Your kingdom come and your will be done. It requires working against a status quo that then, as now, is a status quo that's bent on revenge instead of reconciliation. It's bent on selfishness instead of justice. It's bent on worldliness instead of godliness. And Jesus comes and says, look, all of that needs to be gone out the window. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, and you're not gonna, it's not going to happen by overthrowing anybody else. It's not going to happen by your national pride. It's not going to happen by your ethnic pride. It's not going to happen by your religious pride. It's going to happen by submitting yourselves to the will of God and seeking out him day by day by day. It's a prayer to become a good friend, a good neighbor, a good stranger, and even a good enemy to the people around us. It's effectively a prayer that invites us to take part in heaven's invasion of earth. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it like this. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. There's stuff going on. It started long ago. And it's up to us whether or not we want to be a part of that. Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy will be done. And this is probably the part that I hate the most. Probably of any passage in Scripture at all. Because I want what I want. Does anyone relate to that? I mean, you want your will, if you're really honest with yourselves. Um, I don't like to think about God's will be done because that means a lot of things that I want may not get to happen. And that can mean a lot of different things. Maybe it means ambitions and dreams that I have that I need to realign. Or, you know, in, in a more, uh, in a darker sense, those times that you really want to get revenge on somebody or that you really don't want to take the time to be kind to somebody, those have to go away too. I don't like it to think about God's will be done because it's scary to think about where that might lead because you don't know where it might lead. You don't know where God's going to take you. It's a scary thing. And I think in a sense we overcomplicate the idea of God's will. Um, I don't want to say too much about that except that 
Um, I think you can boil God's will down to the desire for everyone to seek him and to treat others with the assumption that they are created in the image of God. To love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think God's will gets much more complicated than that because once you start aligning your perceptions based on that assumption, then everything else starts falling into place. You don't really have to worry about what's God's will for this or God's will for that because you're already aligned and you're already focused on the greater picture of what God wants from humanity, what God created us to do, and what Christ came to reconcile. It means death of self. And it's a scary thing. But then it's not so bad. Because when you start really going in that direction, you start to realize that it's really, it's not that your desires go away or that you have to give up things that you want. It's that the things that you want start to transform. They start to change and they start to align themselves with the things that God would want anyway. So ultimately, you're not really even giving that much up because what you're taking on are ambitions and dreams and desires that God wants for you, that God wants for everybody. And allow yourself to take part in that and be a part of a rebellion against an ever-darkening world. Ultimately, I really think that there doesn't need to be a whole lot of theological discourse on what it means to pray for God's will to be done and for the kingdom to come. We don't need lessons on what it means to be like Jesus. It's not that complicated. That isn't to say that it's easy, because it's not. I don't want you to hear me wrong. I'm not trying to say that this should be easy for everybody, because it isn't easy at all. But it's not complicated to figure out. It's right there in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus did this. Jesus said that. It's there. And you don't have to think too hard about what he meant when he treated this person that way. Or what he meant when he said that thing about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. N.T. Wright says that the reason Christianity spread in the first uh, two or three centuries was not because big theologians with big ideas crunched the Trinity into a sharper and better form so they could hand it on to other people. It was because the folk on the street who were worshiping God in the person of Christ Jesus, were living in a different way. So that people who saw them said, we didn't know it was possible to live like this. The question isn't, how do we live like Jesus, or how do we work for God's kingdom to come? The question is, what if we actually do it? What will the world look like if we stopped asking questions and just went out there and did what we know we're called to do. I, work, I got a new job a few months ago, and I drive around a lot. Um, so I listen to the news, because if I listen to too much music, my brain turns off and I just get out of work mode. So I try to listen to something that keeps me engaged. And this week was just a horrible week in the world for a million different reasons. And I don't need to go into any of that. And I listen to it, and like so many people, I look up and I think, God, why? I mean, if if 
if you want your kingdom to come and you want me to have anything to do with it, why do I have to contend with this? This is terrible. What are you going to do about it? And we all ask that. Where is God? Why, why does God let these things happen? And I think if we were really listening to what God had to say about it, God's answer would be, where are you? Why don't you do something about it? Because God's given us resources. He's given us passion. He's given us hearts to hurt for people that hurt. He's given us the ability to think and to solve problems. And what are we doing if all we're doing is looking to other people to solve them? What are we doing if we're just blaming it all on God when God has given something to us? And I don't just mean responsibility, but he's given part of himself to us to do something about the problems that we see, to do something to help bring about the kingdom, to do something to alter the world. What kind of excuses do we make? I'm only one person. I don't have the kind of money to do it. I don't have the time. I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't have the experience. I'm too afraid. And it's overwhelming. And that's why we make those excuses. I make them. I know we all make them. Because the thought of all the darkness and all the evil in the world is just too much to try to take on by ourselves. But it's not just ourselves. I mean, we talked about how we pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us. We're praying together. And if we're praying together, that means we are working together. We're not one person against many. We're many people against the darkness of the world. God's light is in us. And that means we have the power to bring about the kingdom and to reveal it to others. Every small act in Christ's name is a point of light in the darkness. And if there's one thing we know about light is that any amount of light sends darkness into retreat. It doesn't have to be a lot because it's easy to see a small light when it's in a very dark place. So then the question becomes... What are you doing with the light that God gave you? What are you doing to bring about the kingdom? On the bulletin, we have a line, uh, an exchange from the show True Detective. And uh, really great show. Um, had some friends who kept telling me, you need to watch it, you need to watch it. And I just didn't have time. Um, and so while I was working on the, the piece, I had lots of time. Um, and so I, someone let me borrow the uh, DVDs, and I watched like all of them in one day uh, while I was working on these other things. And it was just a really interesting show, but there's this really awesome thing at the, near the very end, and they're talking about this whole idea of light and darkness and how one of the characters says, you know, you look up at the sky, and it looks like, to me, that the darkness is way more territorial and that the darkness is gaining ground. And the other one looks at him and says, you're wrong about the sky thing. Because once there was only darkness, it seems to me that the light's winning. And I really love that, because it means that if there's any light at all, then darkness has to run. If there's any God in us, then there's good in us. 
And if there's any good in us, then we have the power and the capacity to do something about the evil that we see. Every kind word, every good deed, every single thing you do in the name of Christ is an act of rebellion against the power of evil in the world. And it changes things. It doesn't have to be something great and huge. There's a line from the Talmud um, where they talk about if you've saved the life of one person, you've saved the world entire. When I was in seminary, I watched a, um, a video on Mother Teresa, and it's just, it almost seems like a cliche to even bring her up, but she was really amazing. Um, and I think that's why it's become such a thing, because you, you just, to me, it's mind-blowing how somebody can be that devoted um, in the face of so much. But there was this interesting episode while they were actually filming this documentary, and a riot breaks out in the streets, and she's cut off from this hospital where there are people who are dying, and they have no one there to help them. And so she just says, I'm going over there. Um, and the, the documentarians and a few other people are trying to tell her, no, you shouldn't go over there, it's not safe, uh, you're going to get hurt, it's dangerous, there are people killing each other, and you have, to, you have to get six blocks, and you have to do it by foot, and there's no way to do this. And it's, the, the funniest thing to me about it was it was these like really well-dressed, clean, safe dudes trying to tell her about danger. And she looked at one of them, and she said, you know that in my life, I've held the hand of thousands of people who were sick and dying. And she says, if I had not held the hand of the first, because I was afraid to take the risk, then I never would have held the hand of the thousands that came after it. Maybe you're not going to start a movement with the little things you do every day. You might, I don't know. Likelihood is, that 50 years from now, someone's not going to be referencing you in a sermon. Probably. But God doesn't call us to care about that. That's not our concern. Our concern is what we do every single day. The little things. Because the little things are the big things. Because that's all we've got. That's what you have the power to do, then do it. We, uh, we've kind of amended this phrase for Christian Church Buckhead where we, we have bumper stickers and say in Atlanta as it is in heaven. And I really like that because it's a reminder that there's a whole world out there, but there's also a city right there. You know? And there's a city right there, but there's a neighbor right here. There's a neighbor right there, but there's a family member right here. There's a family member, but there's a stranger there is always something to do to bring about God's kingdom. Every single thing you do is an act of rebellion. And it can change the world. All you're asked to do is the little bit that you're asked to do. The real question is, will you do it? We're going to take communion here in a few minutes or after I get done. Um, 
And as I was preparing for this message, it occurred to me that communion is probably the greatest reminder of the greatest single act of rebellion in human history. And as I was preparing for it, I was reminded of um, Jesus' encounter with Pontius Pilate right before his execution. Because here you have the governor representing the most supreme and powerful earthly government of the time, arguably in history. And then you have the Son of God face-to-face with him. It's the closest that those two kingdoms have come to completely colliding. And it's awesome. I mean, it doesn't take much space in the, in the passion narrative but every single time I read it, there's just something amazing and tense about Pilate and Jesus kind of squaring off. And what you would expect, what everybody was expecting, was somebody to come and start a revolution and start an insurrection and fight as hard as they could. That was the expectation. Instead, Jesus stood there silent the most defiant act was not saying anything at all. And then he lays down his life. I mean, if that isn't an act of rebellion, nothing is. To give himself when he could have fought because he knew that he had the power to overthrow death itself, to completely alter the course of history with that single act of rebellion. So when we take communion, we take it as a reminder that we're taking part in that day by day by day. That Jesus invites us to come and be a part of a great rebellion. The question that then falls to us is, will we do it? Will we join in this rebellion Will we help alter the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us something to look to in the person of Jesus. We thank you for all that he taught us and for all that he challenged us to do. But right now we confess to you that we're slow to do it. That we're afraid that we're not big enough or strong enough. That we're afraid that we can't succeed. That we're afraid of failure. But God, we ask that you would transform us you would help us to understand that it's not about success or failure. That we're called to faithfulness. That we're called to diligence. Help us to remember that the victory is in your hands. But that we also have work to do to be a part of it. Empower us to do those things 
and most importantly, encourage us to understand that we have it in us to make a difference. Help us to remember that we're not alone, that we pray this prayer together, and that each of us is surrounded by the rest of us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of each other. And we thank you that you have called us to be a part of this great rebellion, that you have called us to be a part of your plan to alter the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.